Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 517. And boy, am I excited to share this episode with you. I'm joined today by Trevor and Simon, who had such a big impact on my life, on TV, on going live, and on live and kicking in my youth. And this was a mad one, because this wasn't, no PR people have sent them out. It's one of the reasons I'm so excited about it, because I've not heard them on many podcasts yet. At their peak, they had, you know, between 12 and 25 million people watching them on Saturday mornings, you know? And they've influenced so much. And we get into all of that. I don't want to give spoilers, but but, but believe me, in in the episode, I, I, I gush over them and give them huge amounts of praise. But this came about really organically. Someone I know called Cora, a friend of mine called Cora, reached out on on social media. And kind of said, look, would you would you have any interest in having Trevor from Trevor and Simon on the podcast? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I would. Because she went to school with Trev's daughter and their parents became good friends because of this or through this. Um, and then they started a band together. I mean, we get into a lot of this in the episode. And I was like, yeah, let's make that happen. So I kind of got put in contact with Trev and I was excited for just that. And Trev said, do you want me to, to see if Simon's up for it as well? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And it was amazing, man. As soon as we jumped on Zoom, as soon as these two started talking and engaging together, it took me back and it was really warm and beautiful and exciting. And I think you're going to hear all of that. There was a lot of love going into this episode. There was a lot I was excited to talk about. And they spoke so perfectly on all of it. And it, as said, for me to have in that moment until now, until now, for me to be a one-person audience to, to Trevor and Simon, the originators of swinging your pants, of we don't do duvets, of numerous other catchphrases and things. When we get to the list of people they had do sketches with them, it will blow your mind. Like If you're not familiar with, with, with Trevor and Simon, which is one of the things I was excited about, right? Because there's going to be a certain generation of people who are going to see this one and go oh, i don't really know who these are let's give it a listen and there's going to be a certain generation that go oh my fucking god this is exciting and this episode kind of it should work for both of those because we talk a lot about stuff that they're doing now some really interesting stuff and then we kind of re- re- reflect on how big things were and their whole journey from from the comedy scene to to like 12 million people uh, watching them. Yeah, it's a hell of a chat and I think you're going to enjoy it. Thank you once again to Cora Laffey for setting this one up. Absolutely delighted that it's happened. Um, We're brought to you as ever by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can get all my merch. We, We do have their new sunglasses back in stock, or the sunglasses are back in stock. Basically, if you don't know, every year... Well, every year or two, I restock these sunglasses that say our slogan on them. We may not be for you, and that's fine. And they're like 15 quid or something. Like We keep them nice and cheap because sunglasses can get crazy. And every year I restock them, and every year they sell out, often quicker than expected. So if this is me giving you forewarning. The sun started to, to be about. The sunglasses are in stock at time of recording. But we've also got swimsuits, you know, vests, t-shirts, caps, all sorts of good stuff. So 
Gad fill your boots over there if you fancy it. We're also brought to you by patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip. That's where you can keep up to date on uh, on everything that's happening. No, you can't. That's where you can support the podcast. I don't post on there that much. I post once or twice a month. Don't go over there and subscribe for the content. Subscribe because you want to support the podcast and because of all the free content that you're getting and throw in a dollar a month to help pay Buddy Peace and John Harris and Jared, you know, the, the Distraction Pieces team because you want to support that and a little bit of help always helps. And we're also brought to you by twitch.tv forward slash Scroobius Pip. I talked a lot about Twitch on the episode with Barmer recently. I, that got so much l- love, man. I recommend if you missed that one, go back and give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. And while I'm here, actually, let's give an unpaid shout out. If you're a fan of Trevor and Simon, you might enjoy the podcast Acceptable in the 80s. It's with Stu Whiffin and Cunt from Cunt and the Gang, who you may know from his recent hit singles, Rallying Against the Tories and the Royals. It's a monthly podcast where they just have a nostalgia trip looking back at what was in the charts 40 years ago on that month, if you know what I mean. So so the, the current episode or the next episode will be June 1983. And they look at what was in the music charts, what came out in the cinemas, and general kind of, you know, news events and things like that. It's very offensive. Don't go there if you're easily offended. But it's a good listen. I enjoy it every month. I'm always excited when that one pops up. You never know when it's going to pop up. It will pop up at some point over the month. And when it does, I'm always uh, it always jumps to the top of my listening list. That, the Jack Slack podcasts, everything that Spencer Kite's doing at the moment, they're the kind of three or four that when they drop, they jump to the top of my listening list. Keyboard Kimura is Spencer's, um, E. Spencer Kite's podcast. I'm just going to plug some podcasts now because Fuck's Given is another one that jumps right to the top of my listening list. Kathy Burke, where there's a will, there's a wake. Yeah, severe MMA. There's loads. There's loads that jump on my list. Um, there was Rob Bryden has just started a fantastic one, and his opening guest, I think, or at least in his first couple, was uh, Coogan. Oh, it's a good chat. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about and to talk to Trevor and Simon for episode five hundred and seventeen of the Distraction Pieces podcast. Let's get into it. I'm joined today by Trevor and Simon. How are you guys? Uh, really good. Hello there. Hello. Thanks for Hi. having us on. I'm excited to, to, to have you both on. How are you both today, though? Simon, you've just got back from America, you were saying. Yes, I was um, I was visiting family over in America, and it was my sister lives over there, and it was my niece's graduation and also my nephew's 21st birthday. So given the pandemic, it was the first chance for us all to get, get together in a big group. Which is great. Yeah, whereabouts are they in America? They're they're in the most absurdly named place of Sunnyvale. And Sunnyvale (laughs) is uh, 40 miles down from San Francisco. That 100% feels like it's a TV show place, (laughs) doesn't it? That doesn't feel like a real place (laughs) at all. It's ridiculous. I love that. I love that. And and how are you, Trevor? Are you well today? I'm fine. I, I'm I'm just back from Asda, actually. Um, so <laughs> equally exciting. <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant. 
even even now, I, I was stopped at the checkout and someone came up and said, oh, can I have a selfie with you? And I, which is always like the most glamorous place to have a selfie in Asda. But um, yeah, you know, I love it, it. Yeah, it's just, just you know, just normal life. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm really good, actually. What? Trev, did you swing your pants? <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. But at the weekend, me, me and Kath, uh, my wife, we celebrated our, our what we've called our 70th anniversary because... Um, we met like 42 years ago and then we've been married for 28 years. And so we've decided we're celebrating our 70th You added together, perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the maths is right. I think it works out like that. So um, we, we had a weekend in London, which was good fun. And uh, uh, yeah, we, we sort of did some cultural wandering around. We went to the Royal Academy and saw an exhibition there, which was good. And uh, we went to a show called No Man's Island at the Big House Theatre, which was fantastic, which is in its last few days. So this is probably too late for anyone to hear it, but uh, it's such a good show um, if anyone fancies going to see that. Um, so that's what I've been doing this weekend. And then back to normal sort of shopping this week. <laughs> Straight back to Asda. I, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, uh, the way these conversations normally go is we get into the kind of life and career. And then right at the end, I ask what you're up to now. And we never get to fit it as much in so I kind of want to flip that and because Trevor I want to talk to you about how this podcast came together because of of your friend and bandmates daughter Cora but yes Simon I want to start by talking to you a little bit about um cinema because it's something I'm a huge fan of I've spoken to to Simon Pegg about it in the past and it's a beautiful thing like cinema you mentioned the pandemic I was filming a tv show in Canada when the pandemic hit and the most important day for me was when they reopened the cinemas because I was out there on my own and just getting to go and immerse myself in cinema in the big screen in the big sound is such an important part for my mental health just as a fan of cinema it's a huge thing and and you guys kind of bring that to people who can't can't get out there as such right Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I've worked now for oh nearly seven years for Medicinema and I run a state-of-the-art cinema in Chelsea and Westminster Hospital for all the patients and their guests. And there's a few of them around the country as well. And it's funny that yeah. you mentioned Simon Pegg because Simon did an advert, which some people will have seen. It went out in many cinemas yeah. and it's of Simon sitting in a cinema with a little patient called Sienna. Well, that's the cinema I manage. So Simon oh, Pegg wow. was actually yeah. in the one uh, that I managed. Annoyingly, on the day he came to film it, I was away in Leeds. And so I actually missed <laughs> him. But, uh, you know, he came along to our cinema. And Sienna, the little patient there, she was three or was it five? I think she was five when she made that advert. And that's a good few years back. And she's still coming in and out of hospital regularly. She was in. She's nine now. And she was in the hospital just uh, this weekend. And she came in to see The Little Mermaid. So it's an amazing charity. We can bring patients in their beds. We can bring patients in the wheelchairs. We've got a great team of nurses, great team of volunteers. And when people come, they just can't believe it's an actual real cinema. And it's interesting that you touched on the mental health aspect because what it does for people, what it, uh, particularly in hospital, and if they're long-term patients and if they get institutionalized a bit, it gives them a sense of normality. It gives them time to spend with their families. It gives them a chance to just escape whatever's going on. It is the most amazing charity and I feel honored to work for them. I love it. And I love that you're building these proper cinemas in these places. It's not just, oh, we're wheeling in a TV on a trolley kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. And, and here's a film. It's like, no, we're wheeling the people in to, to, to be immersed in it. And when, Yeah, when patients first come in, when patients first yeah. come in, they can't believe it. They go like, oh, we thought it'd be a room with a video. They can't believe it's yeah. a real cinema. And they can't even believe they can come in their beds. I mean, what kind of yeah. cinema has space for beds? 
It's what's amazing, though, because, again, like, anyone who's spent any time on a hospital ward, whether it be a few hours, you know, knows how draining it can be and how how strange it can make you feel as an individual. I know Mm -hmm. people who had, you know, extended periods in hospital when they gave birth and for all sorts of different health reasons. And, yeah, to be able to bring the cinema to them as such is is a beautiful thing and and have it not feel like one of the things that you're laying there thinking, oh, when I'm out, I'll do this. And when I'm out, I'll do this. Because then when your stay gets extended, all those when I'm out things just are almost teasing you in a way. They were your things to to, to look forward to and then they're the things that you miss the most. So I uh-huh. to make that a, no, while I'm in, I'm going to go and see The Little Mermaid, for example, is, yeah, is a beautiful yeah. thing. It's fantastic. And also we can do special screenings as well. So a little heavier here, but if there are patients who are very seriously ill or if they're palliative care patients, we can bring them in and give them a private screening. We can get all their families and friends together. And the things that we take for granted can actually mean such a lot, you know, to people yeah. in very difficult positions. And we've had some fantastic screenings for those as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a great charity. I'm really pleased that you know about it. And I'm really pleased that yeah. Simon's still spreading I, the word as well. And I remember I've, I've spoken to Simon about it in person. And I remember those adverts because, again, because of being such a cinema nerd cinemas have really specific adverts so there's certain things i think everyone's seen adverts for and then you realize oh no because not as many people go to the cinema anymore i know there's there's an actor the guy who recently played bowie i remember seeing him advertised in that trailer and just going it's the guy from the Cineworld advert. He, he he used to do the actual Cineworld branded advert uh-huh. at the start, and he's this amazingly successful actor and musician. I'm just like, that's the guy from the Cineworld advert. Like, why is he playing Bowie? <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's the thing that you're like, and Trev, you're like this as well. Because while we're talking about cinema and adverts, I have a new volunteer who just started um, doing shifts with us at Medicinema, and she came along to a second screening last night, and she's coming along because she works for Pearl and Dean. And so she knows oh, all about wow. Berlin Dean. <laughs> ah, fantastic. That was something we did when we first started out doing comedy, me and Simon. Our first kind of live act, I suppose, was recreating the cinema experience. And we'd, we'd do it live on stage with like silly toy props we got from, from like pound shops and stuff and, uh, and signs that said, you know, big screen entertainment, Berlin Dean. And we'd do the ba 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, it was it was really well. It's kind of kind of what got us going on the whole comedy circuit, really, wasn't it? Uh-huh. That theme tune is so iconic, isn't it? I I had Pearl and Dean sponsor the podcast, and we did kind of exchange that I got to do a little podcast advert to go on in the the cinema, and I went to the to one of the specific screens it was on just because I wanted to be in there and go. Excellent, brilliant <laughs> cinema advert. <laughs> well, we were we were we were doing it. Um, the the skit we were doing on cinema at that point was right right back in the early eighties. So the sort yeah. of stuff we were doing were were adverts for for cigarettes, Benson heads cigarettes and stuff like that, which you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. see now. But there was a whole thing where this massive packet of Benson hedges came out of the Thames, I think it was in London. They were winching it up uh, on on cranes, and that was the yeah. kind of big advert. Was we recreated it with a little toy fishing rod from a bucket, like bringing out <laughs> a little little packet of B and H. So that was yeah, this is a long time ago, and and things where they'd have local adverts like your local Chinese restaurant just around the corner, like you know, it was kind of a different different world cinema then. Really. Well, one of my favourites because it was so bizarre was when we just did one. It was an advert for a place called Honest Jesus's Car Repair Shop. 
<laughs> yeah. Where are all these people running to? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, before we dig back, because I want to talk about how you guys came together and so much stuff, there are going to be periods of huge amounts of praise. So I hope you're comfortable <laughs> with that. But you guys were very important in my upbringing. So um, <laughs> oh, brace you. yourselves for that. But, oh, but before thanks. we go back there, Trevor, um, t- 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 tell me about the band you're in, because you're in a band with m- uh, yeah. my friend Cora's dad. And that's yeah. kind of how this came about. She casually said, <laughs> Would you have, be interested in having having Tre- Tre- Trevor from Trevor and Simon on? I was like, yeah, I really would. So well, tell me a bit. Yeah, it's great. Well, I think the whole band thing started uh, when I was uh, probably having a, a midlife, well, more of a mod life crisis when I was about in my forties. I think when, yeah. back in southeast London, when a mate got me involved in like a, a pop punk band called Sucker, and we did that for a few years, which was really good fun. And we even played Glastonbury, which was I don't quite know how that Amazing. happened, but we did the John Peel stage, and like we were on at ten. 30 on a Sunday morning. So it wasn't the biggest crowd, but it was... Um, no, it but was you're a... playing Glastonbury. Exactly, yeah. So that was quite fun. And I kind of... Uh, I've never looked back really since then. I kind of got the bug for playing live music. And so when I came, moved to Broadstairs, uh, there was a whole kind of uh, bunch of people, you know, a whole social scene that sort of grew up from from having kids, really, and, and chatting in the school playground. And um, so we formed this kind of dad band called Thanet City Rockers. And uh, that that was good fun as well. That went on for a few years. Now that's morphed into Charlie Don't Surf, which is the band I play now. So we're a covers band and we, we play just the songs we like. So they're not yeah. always like the most crowd friendly songs if, if you've come along to hear some mellow tunes on a Sunday afternoon or something like that you know we just play punk really and and sort of early 80s punk-ish tunes and any other persons any songs we do we tend to do in a kind of punk style I guess um but it's really good fun and then and people seem to like it and so Alan has been in, in both bands he was in Thanet City Rockers and he's the drummer for Charlie Don't Surf so we've been uh, close mates for a long time now the, uh, the, the first band I was ever in prop was as a bassist and I was the bassist because they had two guitarists who were more more talented than me so I was like right I'll I'll pick up a bass instead and we did everything in a punk rock style purely because of our musical limitations but there's something so rewarding about just like it it was again it's a similar it was a social thing it was me and some mates who worked in HMV and every Sunday we'd just rent out a rehearsal space and there's something that feels so rewarding and amazing about playing the songs that you love. Like, listening to, to the songs that you love feels amazing, but being in it, like, putting yourself in it and playing it is is such a rewarding thing, right? No, it is fantastic. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I don't particularly do any sports. I used to do a bit of cycling, and, and that was a kind of a social thing, but I don't do that now, and I don't go to the gym. But every Sunday night, we do go into this kind of... Uh, sort of garage lock-up studio kind of rehearsal space, yeah. which which we've been using for, well, over 10 years and more, a you know, uh, long time. And it is like a workout you, you or, or whatever. It just lets a load of stress out. You can just let off steam and you can... Uh, and because I sing as well and, and play like second guitar, not brilliantly, but I, I kind of get along. I can be like Joe Strummer or Elvis Costello or I can be... Um, you know, Paul Weller for a bit, whoever, you know, just in the, in that little moment, you can lose yourself. And, well, uh, also, yeah, it's brilliant. also, Trev, I'd like to add, I don't think you're just punk. You're not just punk. You're also post-punk and new wave because you've, yeah, okay. you've added Joy Division in there now. 
Yeah. We have, yeah, we've got Joy Division, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess we are, we do Echo and the Bunny Man as well. We do uh, Killing Moon. So, uh, yeah, we're extending our repertoire a little bit. And, tre- and the band, Charlie Don't Serve, the band played on my 60th birthday last August, which was just fantastic. And they did have everyone up dancing. So, you know. Yeah. People do dance to your Trev. They do, yeah. yeah, they do, actually, yeah. And even, like, Transmission, Joy Division, like, that that seems to be going down really well. And we, and, and we, you know, we don't hold back on it. So it's just, maybe it's just our age group now, you know, people will dance to those songs, because if we love them, then obviously there's loads of people out there the same age who also love them. That's exactly what I was going to say. One of the big things about podcasting and social media, again, I think there's loads of negatives in both of those worlds, but one of the good <laughs> things about them is they have allowed loads of people to realise that there is an audience for everyone. If, if you're passionately into it, there's probably other people <laughs> around the same age who are passionately into it, or, or, or of all ages, really. And I think that, yeah. that that comes with set lists as well. You could write a set list that you think is going to be a crowd pleaser, but then as soon as you put the song on there that you don't think will be a crowd pleaser, it will be the biggest crowd pleaser, if you know what I mean, because it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's what you would like to hear. It's what you would like to hear at a gig. And this is exactly why I've been trying to encourage Trev and the band to do a song by Sparks. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm not totally against it. I'm just not sure I could do the vocal. I think that's what it is. <laughs> I can't. I, I, I couldn't manage the vocal. Hey, and while we're talking about music, because you might not do this, yes. Trev, so I'm going to do it. You've got to listen to Trev's son, Evan Williams, who is just fantastic. Who's his new single was out yesterday, wasn't it, Trev? Uh, yeah, well, it was out at midnight, so it's the, today's uh, this release. Yeah, he's, well, he's had a couple of singles out just in the past six weeks. So, uh, yeah, there's "Wouldn't It Be Easier" by uh, Evan Williams and um, and the Arsonist, which is a, which is a cool song, which is which is the, another recent one. But anyway, I can't go plugging my son. But no, no, you. that's no, why I that's but, why I'm plugging him. Uh, do go but he's still, yeah. Do watch the Arsonist video as well on YouTube, Evan Williams. It's my, that's my favourite. That I love YouTube? it. It is exciting. I mean, he's doing pretty well. He's only young. He's like twenty-two, but he's he's been um, he's he's with Pete Doherty's label, Strap Originals, and yeah. uh, so he's supported him a couple of times this this year. And um, they're a good team there. That, so um, that Kent Coast has got a scene now. That yeah, your Margate and your Broadstairs and your Ramsgate and all of that. It's it's becoming a nice little area for guitar music. I think. No, it is, and it is. It means that there's quite a, uh, a range of venues and, and different audiences yeah. you can reach because like recently we, we played Broadstairs Bandstand um, to, <laughs> we were asked by the council to play Broadstairs Bandstand uh, on the coronation weekend which was which was unusual because of the songs we were playing but obviously people quite like the idea of an alternative kind of celebration Yeah. Uh, so we, we do those kind of things and then then the other night we were at the, uh, at the Libertines Hotel the Albion Rooms uh, in their Wasteland Bar which was yeah. just really good so it's kind of a slight kind of uh, contrast to the bandstand but that's what's nice about living around here really yeah there is a lot happening it is exciting there is that real variation yeah every now and then i'll go out that way specifically to catch the stand-ups at the tom thumb because it's just such a beautiful space to watch comedy it's so so intimate and so local feeling it's nicer than, than going to a lot of the venues so yeah no, it's lovely. The Tom Thumbs, we've played there actually, and that, and it, it's so it's so intimate. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the audience are pretty much standing like you know you're touching noses with them, which is it's just quite intimidating and yeah. uh, and quite noisy for them, I imagine. But um, <laughs> definitely, <yeah. laughs> but it is a lovely. The Tom Thumbs are great venue. There's some really nice places actually around here now. It's good. Well, to kind of rewind rewind all the way back to your early days, like I think the the the, the big kind of Trevor and Simon rant I've had numerous times is that Vic and Bob rightfully 
get a lot of credit for kind of a lot of for influencing a lot of the avant-garde kind of comedy of 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 recent years. Your mm. your Noel Fieldings, your Paul Foots, and people like that. But I think Trevor and Simon need a lot more cr- credit for f- for that as well because you were doing it on on daytime TV on kids TV. I guarantee no. F- Fielding was swinging his pants in his youth. <laughs> I guarantee Paul Foot was swinging his pants. And for me personally, seeing you guys on going live and live and kicking and all those things was a gateway to kind of left field comedy, unusual comedy, fun comedy that wasn't just cynical and dark and angry and 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 offensive. So yeah, I guess like how did you guys come together, and what were those early days like? Well, well, firstly, thank you. I mean, that's a very nice thing <laughs> yeah, to say. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, we we met at Manchester University and we started doing comedy then. I think I think I'll let you waffle on more, Trev. But one thing that <laughs> I'm like just thinking, waffle. I'm thinking of the thing that maybe ties in what you've said about us and then Vic and Bob and then yourself as well is that you always stop from the premise of entertaining yourselves. Almost you stop from you know yeah. we never we never particularly thought oh what should we do for kids? We did what we thought was funny, but then the key is making sure it then works for them. You know, you can't keep it too insular. So you kind of do what you enjoy doing, but then make yeah. it suitable for the audience as well. And I think that's kind of, I mean, we did really bizarre stuff. We did do one. I'll, I'll briefly tell this, Trev. We did do one called Art House, and it was spelled A-R-T-H-A-U-S. And we played a kind of couple of weird German art critics. And it was very bizarre. It was most probably very Vic and Bob, I would have, you know, out of all the kind of <laughs> things we did. Yeah. And then after we did it once, because it was live TV, our boss just came up to us after we'd done it and he went, never again, boys, never again. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I think we came at it, though, from an, a, a different angle for, for Children's BBC at that point, because we, it was like kind of the late 80s, and we'd been doing the, the London comedy circuit for a couple of years leading up to that. And this was what was then called the alternative comedy cir- circuit. It was like a an antidote to the to the old school kind of comedy that you you'd mentioned earlier really and we that's was that was kind of our background we'd come through we'd actually met at a university doing drama which we didn't do a lot of drama we ended up just mucking about and making each other laugh and doing comedy which is <laughs> how it started and 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 then we went on and did the edinburgh fringe thanks to simon funding it really pretty much well <laughs> well let's be blunt thanks to my dead yeah. grand funding it <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, fundamentally. Yeah, no, I, it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I loved reading of you you going to the fringe and and promising non-racist, non-sexist humour, which seems quite basic these days. But back then, again, that was a bold promise. That was like, oh, that's nice, nice to know. I'm not going to get any racism or sexism. I would, I would go in that door, going, oh, this feels safe. Then this feels like exactly <laughs> it does what I'm seem after. A bit, yeah, it seems a bit on the nose now, but it was, it you know, it was kind of. Uh, it, it was a new thing. It was, I yeah. guess, it felt like we were we were kind of involved in the sort of punk rock of comedy at that point, really. Yeah. So it did feel like there'd been a big change, and we did have a sheet, you know, a publicity sheet that we'd send out for people. It had all that information that we did non-sexist, non-racist comedy, and it was all very like very serious, really, it was serious comedy. And yeah. uh, we went off to we did all kinds of different gigs around that time, and we went to a, a working men's club in Leeds where we were a bit of a surprise there. And afterwards, the the manager came up to us and said, oh, "Yeah, that was um, that was satire, wasn't it, lads?" And we said, "Yeah." And he said, "Yeah, we don't want that round here." 
<laughs> so, so that's not that, what we're after. No, they didn't want satire. So there was the kind of you know that was sort of a little bit of, of what the atmosphere was like when you went well, to yeah, gigs. Well, you know, I think the weird thing about that, that time as well is because people think, um, and particularly since terms like woke, which are used as insults now, you know, which mm. uh, anyone in their right mind look at what the word is woke it's a good yeah, thing you yeah. know it's not an insult 100%. but that but actually it's only in the mid 80s i think that's how and coming from our manchester university as well lots of us were like that i mean in a way like you say Trevor, it was almost a bit kind of not whether self-righteous or pompous or whatever but we would make these declarations and it was a an antidote and an answer to what was the prevailing comedy of the time you did feel like you had to say that. I remember we we did gigs at um, some council venues where the council would give you a sheet that you had to fill out before. Uh, this most probably still goes on, but there'd be certain criteria on the sheet that you had to tick or prove for them to let you then do the gig there. And I think they actually phrased it, whereas we would say non-sexist, non-racist. I think they actually phrased it that you couldn't do any blue material, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> And again, it's 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 genuinely worth noting that saying all of these things now, it sounds fine, but you were going into working men's clubs to people who were expecting stuff to be racist or sexist or or, or whatever else. So it is a stance to say, no, that's not what we're going to do. It is making a stand. It's not just playing at your local arts council kind of v- v- venue or whatever, you were going out there and... Uh, the, the other thing that's going, funny about what we're that... Doing. But another thing that's funny about that is that swearing was seen in the same context. So in other words, yeah. you, you know, if, if if you went to a place and you go, we're not sexist and we're not racist, and they go, oh, but you do swear. And that would, you know, right. that would cause yeah, offence yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As if they're the same thing. We did do our fair share of kind of arts council venues as well, though. Yeah. <laughs> it was certainly in Manchester, which is why we had to leave Manchester in a sense, because at that point, the scene was quite small. And so the idea of, you know, stand-up comedy venues uh, or arts venues, I mean, they, they weren't everywhere, like certain, certainly stand-up comedy. They're not, they weren't everywhere like they are now. And so our audience was, was quite the same for a long time in Manchester. Yeah. There was a certain kind of group of arts people that would come along to certain gigs. And, and so we found that to get to get any further or extend what we were doing, we, we did have to make that move down to London where there was a bigger circuit. Well, I kind of made made my name on the spoken word scene in around 2006 and I played a local gig and the touring headliner was John Hegley. And oh, yeah. he was someone who kind of was... An, an an advocate of you need to get out there. It's all all well and good playing to your home crowd constantly, but you're not going to know if you're getting any better because they're already on side. So getting out there and playing around the country is an important thing, right? And he yeah, was yeah. Pro- pro- proclaiming that back then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did the same. He, it was, we met him up when we were doing Edinburgh, uh, and yeah. it was he was playing with the Popticians, and and they were. I mean, he was great, and there was a. Um, there was a guy called Phil Nice as well, who was, yeah. was part of um, a double act with with Arthur Smith, and and they, but those two were were kind of very encouraging, and, and a few other people as well who just said, look, you've got to get down to the London circuit and do that. And even the circuit then in London w- w- wasn't exactly you know what it is now. There were small venues like little kind of vegetarian cafes and and small little rooms above pubs. It wasn't the corporate scene that it kind of is now in a way. Yeah. But, um, 
Uh, so we, yeah, that, John Hegley's advice was great even then, you know. He, I can't he, remember, Trev. He said something really surreal to you, and I can't remember where he was now. What, didn't he say something? No, I don't, no, I don't remember. I, I, thought, I, did. I thought he said something to you along the lines of, you're very dark, you're material, or something weird that, that, <laughs> that didn't really fit with how we viewed ourselves. But it was something no. like that. He loves a bit of that, though. I remember the gig I was speaking of there, my mum came along and she got she bought a CD off him at the end and, and he was signing it for her and, and he said to her, did you enjoy the gig? And she was like, yeah, I really, like, I enjoyed y- your show. And he said, which part was your favourite? <laughs> <laughs> Such a specific thing to put yeah. my lovely little mum under pressure. Yeah. Which bit specifically did you enjoy? She's like, oh, well. <laughs> he is, you know, he's, he's quite scary in a way, because, yeah. you know, obviously not me. He's very intense and, yeah. uh, and very, you know, and obviously very bright and, and well, you know, not going to suffer fools gladly. So you sort yeah. of felt like you had to be pretty on the ball around him, really. Yeah, I remember being extra prepped for that gig because I was like, right, I, I I want the crowd to like me, but I mainly don't want Hegley to not like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did it <laughs> go, did it go well? Yeah, it went well. It was, it was great. Yeah, it was a really good run. Good. It was lovely. It's like that line that I think it was Simon Blay who always used to say it, but the lots of comedians have said it's like that thing where you go like comedy, it's a serious business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so how was it when you came down to London for this serious business? As said, like, having done it at home up up north coming down to, to, to London is a big deal and at that point again in a pre kind of social media world you did just have to come down and take a risk right you had to come down and go right here's what we want to do and like these days you take a risk by uploading something onto YouTube like that's the risk yeah. are people going to like it or not yeah. there's no real risk there in those days it was right if we want to take this seriously if we want to do this properly then yeah. we need to re- relocate essentially so yeah. yeah how was that with all the all the pressures of that it was quite tough for Simon because he you, you didn't really want to leave Manchester did you I mean it had been you know your home for so long and uh, of course I'd met Simon in Manchester having come up from Southampton where right. I grew up so I I was kind of less worried about moving on or travelling around, but not, not that Simon had a problem with travelling. It wasn't that. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can say. I don't know why I'm speaking for you. you can... <laughs> I don't, well, well, the interesting thing is, it's interesting that you say that because I can't remember. I don't remember <laughs> right. other than we did it. I mean, the hard part, what I was never good at, and I, I most probably put more pressure on Trev for this, I couldn't cope. I really didn't like the phone calls. You're right that social media didn't exist. The way you got gigs was phone in, phone in, pestering, phone in, phone in. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't like doing the phone calls at all. So Trev most probably did way more phone calls than me. And then you would kind of... I'm very good at pestering. <laughs> you'd get you'd get an open spot and then it would build and build. But it was kind of a hectic time because we also had to try to earn some kind of money. And we ended up working for uh, an agency, Manpower. So during the day, we were doing kind of day jobs and crazy day jobs. And then in the evening, we'd be going off and doing gigs. And also, we were getting around on our bikes. We were cycling everywhere with props strapped to the handlebars and everything. It was kind of a (laughs) slightly crazy way to live when I think back on that. And sometimes it it would get quite stressful. I do remember one evening... We were doing gigs, we were doing our manpower job, and we somehow ended up um, having a drink with the manpower people in some kind of pub. And I'm thinking of this because I was thinking of this, Trev, the other day, because the new Sparks album is called The Girl is Crying in a Latte. 
And it's yeah. a great song. It's a great song. With Kate Blanchett. Yeah, yeah. Blanchett. Uh, basically, yeah. I just remember just bursting into tears in that pub. We, and I ended up crying and crying in that pub. So maybe you're right. Maybe I, <laughs> I was a mess. <laughs> it's really interesting because, again, it's worth noting as well, you, you mentioned the phone calls there. It's pre-email. And, again, I, 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 I feel I sometimes bang on too much about being working class but it's weird what seems normal when you're working class and you want to succeed because I did exactly that I worked for an agency and mm. it would be one week I'm delivering flour not flowers flour and the next week I'm working in a factory but all the time I'm just trying to get through to go to an open mic in the evening to go and perform somewhere yes in yeah. the evening and you do you look back at it and go man that's as 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 seasoned performers now it's, it, that seems insane but that was perfectly normal then right that you're yeah. just you're doing whatever you need to do to pay the bills so that you can try and get this opportunity yeah i mean it was physically kind of demanding in a way you know i was certainly a lot fitter back then because uh you know one job i did i remember getting into a transit van on the old kent road and driving like for two hours out of london somewhere all through the traffic turning up at this warehouse and then we had to take the handles off a load of paint tins and put another handle back on it because the handles were defective that was our job for the day <laughs> it was so dull and so exhausting and then you get back in the transit van go all through the traffic van, and then you probably do a gig in the evening or something but then i'd probably cycle to the gig for where I, you know south london because a lot of the gigs were, were north london so or whatever or and so you'd have to cycle all up there i mean it was bonkers really and yes i did have this big plastic fish sticking out of my cycle pannier because that was one of our <laughs> one of our props from the cinema things it was piranha 2 the flying killers um just, <laughs> just when you thought it was safe to kiss a fish that's kind of and then we do a thing with the big plastic fish anyway yeah. So it was, yeah, it was kind of mad. But I was, I was definitely the pestering one because I did pester Simon to leave Manchester. He was very reluctant to leave Manchester, and and for good reason. And it was a shame actually that, that, that our timing was slightly off because then Manchester happened and Manchester became the centre of the world, and we'd moved down to London. But we weren't to know that really. If we'd have stuck around, who knows what would have happened? I love um, the idea of all those bands just waiting for you two, to, to, you two to leave, and then going right, they're gone now. Let's <laughs> all start. Let's all start doing the gig. <laughs> yeah, that's there's room at the art centres now. There's room at the art centres. Let's play our music instead. Uh, there's probably some kind of Forrest Gump type of film about us yeah. that you could make. Where you know, everywhere we go, we leave behind this like <laughs> exciting thing. You just missed uh, that that huge moment. Yeah, just missed the boat every time. So, so, what was kind of the route from that? Because. Simon, you touched upon, you did have swearing in, you know, you did, it was still kind of a grown-up set, albeit not <laughs> sexist or racist. <laughs> um, what was the, the route into into TV into, and, and to kids' stuff, essentially? Well, one of the producers on Saturday Morning TV, they never had any comedy on it. And there was a producer called Charlotte Black who saw us at, I um, can't remember what the venue was now, it was one of Eugene Cheese's venues, wasn't it, Charlotte? Yeah, yeah, it was the Chuckle yeah, Club. The Chuckle Club. And she kind of came up to us afterwards and just said that they were looking for comedians. And we ended up doing an audition for it. And the audition went well. But I do remember that Chris Bellinger, who was our boss, he said, there's about one joke in there that we can use. So it was a yeah. kind of a case of them convincing them that I think we had a second audition where we worked on some more tailored material that we thought would suit the kids. And then eventually yeah. they gave us the job. And rather comically, though, we thought we got the job and then we found out it was for four weeks. So we had a four-week right. kind of tryout period, which was a bit stressful. 
particularly since we knew there were some other double acts waiting in the wings as well. So, uh, yeah. but that went okay. And then we stayed there for 10 years. It was. That's uh, it? Apparently, we've got Lenny Henry to thank because apparently it was him who initially advised the Saturday morning team that they needed to get some comedy in on the and some new comedy on the show. So that was when I think like people like Charlotte went out as researchers looking for the right act to to bring in. And I think there was obviously like loads of fantastic like comedy stuff going on. I mean, at the time we were performing alongside Joe Brand and and Jack D and Paul Merton, and, and there was some great comics out there. But I think our kind of stuff was really silly and very visual and we used a lot of toys and props and I think I, th- I think and 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 just silly stuff but it was quite a serious subject Trev, Trev, we Trev. On, sorry yeah. I've got to interrupt you Go just on. said you just said this and I'm going to highlight it you just went we were working <laughs> alongside comics like Joe Brand and Jack D and Paul Merton and there were some great comics out there <laughs> Yeah, you noticed. (laughs) We know what you meant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I apologise to those three. (laughs) But I mean, did you have any points of questioning it? Because Trev, you've 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 touched upon being a fan of punk and post-punk and Mm. all these things. And I know punk was a genre that Mm. suffered massively from as soon as they become successful. They've sold out and they're not cool anymore and things like that. You're you're gigging with Jack D and Joe Brand and some good comedians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so, particularly at that point, and I think it's changing a bit in recent years, but still to this day, there is kind of a kids comedy or kids TV isn't yeah. taken as seriously, and yeah. even t- TV stuff could at that era of your. Like coming out of the eighties of this alternative comedy w- w- wave, it could be seen as like you've sold out because you go into TV rather yeah. than than yeah. doing this. Was there any wrestling with that on your parts, or were yeah. you just wow? I want to no, do no, this. No, both of us were. I mean, we because like we like I said, we we come through that kind of eighties time at university. There'd been a lot of political stuff going on around the world. Mm. Real, uh, you know, as well as the punk ethos that that we we both taken on into our lives. Really, I think so. Yeah, it, it was a struggle in a sense. But we liked being silly as well. We liked yeah. doing silly stuff. We enjoyed what we did. And also, I think we weren't... I don't think we saw ourselves as as being maybe... I don't know whether we were not tough enough or we had a, didn't quite have that drive to take on the comedy circuit forever in the way that other comics have. And, and sometimes as a double act, it can be quite tough live to deal mm. with a tricky crowd because stand-ups can take on the audience in a slightly different way than a double act can because to some extent we're working with um slightly scripted material and then going off script we 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 improvised a lot around it but at the same time it's a harder thing and i think we did find it tough although we like did the you know we literally only did the circuit for a couple of years before we got the tv gig which was which some people would see as very lucky but that two years was quite a strain at times and i think because of what we were saying, we weren't earning a lot of money. When you did a gig, you'd get like five or ten quid at the end of the night between yeah. you, which was the door split. And it was a struggle. And and I think the struggle, I think there was a point actually, where, you know, where Simon was crying in his beer in that pub he talked about. You know, there were times when we were going to pack it in. And I think there was a strain on us on us both in a way that we thought we'd, we'd had enough. There was also another weird thing about it, though, that we, and I think you're the same in this matter, that it wasn't like we were thinking at any point, what's our job? How do we make a living? We were rather doing the only thing we knew to do. There wasn't, so yeah. there wasn't a career plan. There wasn't us thinking like, well, no. if we do this, it will lead to this and then we'll be rich and then we'll be famous or anything like that. There was nothing like that. 
There was just, this is what we do. This is what we do. Yeah. And this is what we can do. And yeah. so it's kind of, that kind of drive to just do what you can do is kind of quite bizarre in a way. And we actually managed to see, even though it was children's TV, even with the compromises there, and over time, the production team and everyone who worked with us came to see how what we what we did and how they could benefit from us all working together. Because it's certainly in the earlier days, there were times when they'd be t- they tried to be quite prescriptive with us and they'd say, we need you to do this. And we were defiant. We were like, well, no, we do this. And so it was kind of, <laughs> yeah. we were most probably pains in the necks a lot of the time. And we did, sometimes yeah. we did get into trouble. I mean, one thing that I remember was when they asked us, Every now and then they'd say, please do this bit of normal kids TV. Uh, there was one thing where they said, please, please just do this promotion for the uh, Blue Peter appeal. So Blue Peter are doing an appeal to fund um, baby monitors in a hospital. And they said, please do this. And remember, it's live TV. So we did it in character and we did what we were told, but we couldn't stop ourselves. And we just kind of looked to the camera at one point and went, shouldn't the government be doing this? And uh, we got into such trouble. And again, it was another Amazing. of those moments. Our boss, Chris, the number of times he must have said to us, never again, boys. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were awkward. We were awkward because of everything we just, you know, our kind of attitude and our, our kind of beliefs that we felt. It was an awkward place in, in that BBC world. And, yeah. and, and and quite quickly then we had to think about it as a career a little bit and had to make decisions based on that. So we were taken on at one point by quite a big agency and uh, they rang us up and said, oh, we've got you a gig. It's it's a gig um, entertaining the employees of Barclays Bank. And this was like in the late 80s. And this was when the Barclays were still associated with apartheid in South Africa. And, and there was a, there was a big awareness to sort of boycott Barclays. So we said, well, no, we don't want to do that, thanks. And they said, well, what do you mean? It's a big thing. <laughs> you know, it's like a th- I said, it was thousands. It was a lot. I mean, for us, this was like, we were, I mean, our first, um, I can't remember, we weren't earning a lot of money anyway. And we'd yeah. been on, you know, we were doing those jobs that we were talking about. And this was a lot of money. And, and we said, well, we're not doing it. And they said, well, you've got to do it. It's, you know, I said, well, we're not because we we don't want to work for Barclays Bank. We don't want to be paid by them. And they were but it's thousands of pounds. I said, well, well, sorry, but we're not doing it. So they said, well, I don't think we can work with you then from now on because yeah. you're just not going to, you know, we were just too awkward for them. We could, but- that we that kind of um, resistance just wasn't part of their plan. You know, they wanted to talk about a five-year career plan and this and that, and that wasn't... Oh, uh, no, there's a tendency as well, which is, a, which is an interesting thing. There's a tendency in the want of the term show business that you don't say no to things. You say yes yeah. to things. And, yeah. and I think actually, I think as I'm older... I think it's good to be open to things. I don't think you should ever do anything you don't want to do. So you should be able to say no, certainly where there's a political angle where you clash. But yeah, I mean, we we had some other friends who literally they would say yes, they go yes, but they tended to be more acting jobs. So that, that made more sense, you know. And that's it. But I, I, I completely agree. And it ties into into two things here the ability to say no to somewhere you don't want to be so that when you go to where you do want to be you can give a hundred percent right and and that's uh-huh. what i got from you guys on tv like you guys would enjoy yourselves and enjoy being s- s- silly and doing what you do I, I always remember doing when my first single was blowing up we were doing all sorts of tv and one of the stations we, we, we went on was a free channel called Nuts TV. So Nuts Magazine had a TV station for a while. Uh-huh. Really odd thing. But we were on there with another band, and the other band just clearly felt that they were above it. They weren't playing along. They weren't doing any, having any of the conversations. And our thought was, 
well, you shouldn't have come then. Like, like it's it, it's yeah. fine to say no to nuts TV for fuck's sake. We didn't, <laughs> but we went and we enjoyed it and steered into it. It's fine to say no, but don't turn up and then go. Oh, we're too good for this, and not and not yeah. go along with yeah. it. So I think that's that's a key thing there of of not accepting everything. But then when you do accept it, know that you can go right. We're going to have a whole load of fun here and do what yeah, we absolutely. do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's why, in a sense, we were we were very excited to to, to do the Saturday morning TV because I mean I'd grown up watching Saturday morning TV anyway so uh, swap shop and and stuff like that was was part of my childhood and so being on on Saturday morning TV was 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 exciting and it also gave us a chance in a way to offer something maybe different and to do a different kind of stuff that that it's not that we weren't like it wasn't like a big campaign of ours but we were happy to be there in a way doing comedy that was maybe a bit different different targets I, I guess yeah. children's comedy had always had sort of yeah, I don't be. I don't know. There wasn't much children's comedy, to be honest, and so it was quite interesting to be able to try and find targets that we felt were okay in a way, or um, and and not the usual stuff. There was, yeah, going right back to that question, there was a, a feeling of bit selling out, but also <laughs> just an excitement to be there, just to see well, where's this going to lead us, and also we get to meet a load of pop stars, which was yeah. like hilarious. Yeah, or, the, or, the, or that was it. I think that stood out with you guys. Is it felt like they'd got an act in to put them in front of a young audience rather than they'd got someone to make an act for young audience if you know what I mean obviously you will have tweaked and adjusted but it didn't mm. feel like you'll see a lot of kids TV shows and it will sound almost condescending the way they're talking to the children and all that and you guys would come on and just be these mad characters and it would have that excitement and that edge and and live TV was a big part of that how was it being there in kind of one of the peak eras of live TV because a lot of that has died away now, but it was such a strangely exciting thing to have so much going on in the moment or going live, quite literally. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if there's not as much live TV now, it's most probably also because everyone's got their own channel. There's so many channels now. You can yeah. kind of, you know, when people say to me, oh, why isn't, you know, it's not like it used to be. And you go, well, no, because kids have their own channels. They've got their own things yeah. going on. You know, it's not a bad yeah, yeah, thing yeah. necessarily. Um, yeah. But it was quite amazing. And we do, I remember again, being told that, at our peak, you would have 12 million people watching. And then going into, I think this is right, going into Grandstand, because after us was Grandstand, and our main slot used to be at the end of the show. And basically, people getting ready for Grandstand would watch the end of going live and live and kicking. Now you have a feeling they once got up to something like 25 million viewers. I may be making that up, am I, Trev? That's mad. No, I, I think there was something like that many over the three hours, I think. Right. Yeah, it, it did get up to a lot. Uh, but at any one point, there was always a few million watching, you know, so it was <laughs> very different. I mean, how did you find that then? Because, again, you've spoken of going from the clubs and working day jobs to get by. Suddenly you're getting m millions and millions of viewers, but a lot of those viewers are kids. So it's not necessarily turning into gig ticket sales or, or any other kind of, of yeah. revenue for, for you guys. So it's this weird thing of having this huge exposure, but they're maybe wondering what to do with it other than go, oh, this is nice. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the thing was, we didn't have a lot of time to think about it because once after that first four weeks when they decided to take us on, you know, uh, uh, for the for the rest of the series, 
there wasn't you know it was a it was quite full-on in a way because the, the, the weeks kept coming round, and we yeah. were asked to write about 20 minutes well we were filling about 20 minutes of that three hours and and actually our our act at that point was only half an hour long anyway and only one joke we could use so we were suddenly like <laughs> yeah. having to write a lot of material new material every week a lot. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so we just thought well, well i mean we just were churning out stuff which is why some of it was good some of it was really ropey some of it was just like what the hell because we just had to fill the time so we were coming up with sketches to start with and we did yeah. like historical sketches we had a we, i don't know we had some book that was by some uh radio dj it was by, it was by simon mayo okay oh, really and it was it, it was, was a, this book it was a book about um on this day this happened so it's kind of a right. book with every day of the year with kind of interesting things so for example on one of the saturdays we read that um thomas crapper had invented the toilet or something like that. So we yeah, did a yeah. sketch. We did a historical sketch. There was a Wordsworth one. So we did a sketch about I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. And it was kind of all from this book by Simon Mayo. We just used that as a springboard to kind of pick Amazing. something. Something so his, anything for historically topical. Yeah. Yeah. And that soon, we soon exhausted that book. And then, of course, then we had to like <laughs> come up with something else. So then we thought about characters and catchphrases and stuff. And, and then all that, all our kind of the influences from our childhood, watching Morka and Wise or stuff, or all the kind of, you know, uh, Monty Python and, and different things like that. And also then uh, during our student times, we, we kind of got quite interested in Saturday Night Live stuff and Steve Martin and the Blues Brothers and, and all that kind of world. Mm. And, and so we thought, well, let's let's try and see what we can do with that kind of thing. So we then got it into our heads that Saturday morning TV was our Saturday Night Live, but early yeah. in the day. So so we kind of then approached it in that way and came up with characters that that were kind of a bit out there. Some of them were a bit weird. Some of them were ripped off from Saturday Night Live um, <laughs> in a way. And also then we were out watching stuff, you know, that were our, our contemporaries. And, and funnily enough, you know, Vic and Bob had started out doing stuff with, with Jonathan Ross's company. So they were yeah. doing their preview shows down in New Cross, um, in Deptford, uh, wherever, where, the Albany Theatre. And uh, and we went to see them. And, it, and that kind of affected the way things were going as well. And so... I think there, there was definitely a connection there between us and, and Vic and Bob, in a sense. One of my favourite things was when we came to the end of one of the series, and it was the last show of the series, and we wanted to do something special. The only guests we had to work with for this special end was, I, it was a boy band who'd been and gone, I can't remember now. But I, but we thought, like, uh, not much we can do here. And we went to our boss and said, you've got to get some more guests. And he goes, there's no one else. And we said, what if we get some guests? And he went, well, well, you can run it by me. So we then got on the phone. We did get on the phone. Um, we went back to him and said, how about if we get Vic Reeves coming in and a Jonathan Ross? And he goes, yeah, all right. Uh, actually, it was the other way around. We only got Jonathan Ross, but Jonathan Ross turned up with Vic Reeves. And so we got them both involved in the sketch. And it was just fantastic. Amazing. Going back to the thing earlier as well about the week, it was a very scheduled week, particularly in the first two or three years. So basically, Monday, you'd go into the BBC for a production meeting, which took up most of the day. Tuesday and Wednesday, we'd have to write the scripts. Thursday, we'd go to the rehearsal rooms in Acton and rehearse them all. And then Friday, we'd rehearse on camera in the studio. And then Saturday, we'd do the show. So it was kind of full week of work. Yeah. Once yeah. we got more into the flow of things, we didn't go into the Monday meeting because we felt that anything, we, you know, we could do that in a phone call. So it gave us an extra day to write. 
And then eventually we also got to a point where we just rehearsed on the Friday on camera. So we kind of, you know, because either because we got better at what we do in all Asia, I don't know which. Either or. They can come <laughs> hand in hand. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. they can come hand in hand. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so how was it to go from c- cycling to gigs, carrying y- 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 your cardboard fish and your props to a BBC budget of props and a props department and a costume department and all these things? Because you guys did do a lot of characters and a lot of like costumes would be part of that how was that to suddenly have kind of yeah the the free reign of the bbc i guess well it was fun i mean it, it, suddenly we realized how much we liked dressing up and we did yeah. <laughs> i don't think we realized <laughs> yeah. and there was a, there was a costume store in acton at that time the bbc had and it was literally rails and rails and rails yeah. of, of dodgy 70s suits kind of colorful cardigans whatever you wanted or <laughs> i didn't know we wanted it till we saw it but anyway there was <laughs> stuff there hats and all kinds of stuff that we, oh, whatever we, no one else wanted <laughs> usually yeah yeah usually it was just oh well we'll have that and then sometimes we basically the, you know, you, I know that you thought they were really rounded characters, but sometimes they were just based on a costume. We got the costume, thought, well, what can we make out of that? Well, the weird thing with props is, and it took us a while to adapt to this, is we had a we had a strict philosophy about props when we were doing the circuits. We were called the Devil Fish Horn Club. Um, basically, we wouldn't make props. We our props mm. that the, the worked for the act had to be found. We had to find right. things. And the found thing would then become part of the comedy. So it had to be something that existed because we had this philosophy kind of that if you, if you made it, if you made the prop, I suppose it's almost like a cheat because we wanted things to be intrinsically funny from the world we're in. So they had to be found props. So when we went to the BBC and they're going, we can make this for you. We go, no, 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 we can't. We don't want, we, we didn't want money spent on things. We didn't want things made. We did find that there was the, again, the props department so just like trev talked about the costume department we could go to these big warehouses and we could look through props and if we found a prop that existed we'd use it now over a period of time that philosophy clearly went and if we could if we needed something and they could make it for us we let them make it i I love it though i love it as a philosophy because you're right because there's a difference between finding something that was made seriously and making it funny than finding something that was made to be funny or made Uh as a joke. There's a different humour in that and there's a different laugh when you go, this was made earnestly, now we're putting it in this situation and it's ludicrous. Uh Yeah, that was a nightmare in the early days though when we started because what we tended to go to, they weren't pound shops then, there was a a shop in Manchester called Ubi Doo which was a 50p shop, everything was 50p and there were big signs up that said, don't ask the price, everything's 50p. So as a joke, we used to go up to the till and say, how much is this? And they'd say, yeah, 50p. And we'd do that every time. But anyway, that's where we got a lot of our stuff to, which was our initial act, was going to Ubi Doo, buying these things and saying, what can we do with this? Um, Sometimes it was like a clockwork spider if we were lucky or it could just be like a big... Uh, I can't. Well, I mean, just I was thinking of those phone cowboy hats, but that was it was you, wasn't it? That was an earlier thing. I don't know that they were from Movie Do Simon. I, anyway. I, I love the value you're getting there because you're getting the laugh on stage and you're getting a laugh for yourself in going up and saying, "How much is this?" <laughs> well, <laughs> so, 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 <laughs> it's, it's it's a value shop anyway, but you're getting double value out of it. <laughs> when we went to uh, when we went to Edinburgh <laughs> for the first time in 1984, we and, and when we did the thing I referred to earlier, Honest Jesus's Car Repair Shop. We had a car, we bought cars from Ubi Doo. So we bought toy cars from Ubi Doo. But the sketch ended with Honest Jesus going nuts and bringing our hammer and smashing the car to bits. So destroying it as much as possible in the live show. 
So to go to the Edinburgh Festival, we had to go to Ubi Doo and buy 25 of these cards <laughs> and then get them all up to Edinburgh on the National Express coach, along with all the other props. Uh, 1250, it's a bargain. And with a lot of a lot of the props we did smash up. We used to do um a, a thing, uh, the Who sing in my generation, and at the end we'd they were little toy plastic guitars and we'd be like this playing, and then we'd smash them up. So then you have to go and buy more. So uh, and even when we were on the comedy circuit in London, there was stuff that we were smashing up. So quite often before every gig, one of us would have to go out on a little shopping expedition to get a packet of custard creams some party hats which was part of the thing we were doing a tin of the cheapest lager you could find you know just things like that and the toys that were going to be smashed up so it was it was kind of it was quite yeah it was quite nice in the end when we got to the bbc that we could i was gonna say <laughs> particularly when you go back and give the context that some of these gigs you're getting a cut of the door you're getting a fiver or a tenner it's like that's going straight back into ubi Doo. they must be delighted <laughs> Yeah. When they see uh, you guys have a book in, they're like, right, we've got new, <laughs> new money coming in. Uh, well, 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 we're coming up to the hour mark, so I'll start to wrap things up. But you touched upon moving more towards seeing it as you guys getting to do a daytime a Saturday Night Live, moving more towards characters and catchphrases. How was it when swinging your pants kind of took off and took over? Because you said earlier, Trev, that you were in Asda and someone <laughs> asked for a photo and the instant yeah. question from Simon was, did they ask you to, to swing your pants? Because it's it's one of my clearest memories of my youth, of everyone being so excited about swinging your pants and it being the easy gag. Like, you could you could do it anywhere. It's, it's the gag that everyone could use. How was that when that all kind of went crazy? And I guess, how did it come about? Well, Simon, you tell that... The origin story of swinging your pants. This is... This is, this is <laughs> you say I'm how doing. it came about, Simon. Well, well, um, so Trev was the... Uh, by the way, the singing corner. So the, the characters who swung their pants was a folk duo called The Singing Corner, who got yes. their name, The Singing Corner, because that was their names. They were called Don Singing and Bob Corner. And yep. Trev was Don Singing. And Trev would play the guitar. And I remember standing next to him, not knowing what to do. And then just on this one, I think it was in rehearsal, I just kind of grabbed my trousers or pants, as we call them, and started this daft dance. And Trev just said to me, and I think not even in character, just messing around, he goes, what are you doing? And I just went, I'm swinging my pants. And, and it just, it, it came about by accident. There wasn't, once we got more into the rhythm of things, we kind of learned about catchphrases and making catchphrases yeah. and whatever. But it was an accidental catchphrase. It's because it's it was a say what you see catchphrase. Trev asked me what I was doing and that's what I was doing. But it was great because the character that Simon was playing suddenly had, he used the word pants as an in the American word for trousers. Yeah. But of course, then that had different connotations for different people, I think. So I think that, that it kind of meant different things. People were sending underpants in the post into the into the <laughs> into the BBC mailroom room, which was odd. And we had to kind of sort of keep saying, "No, it's not pants. It's not underpants. It's nothing to do with underpants." It's like, and anyway, we, in the end, we gave up trying to explain anything and just just did it. And um, but it did take off in a way that completely surprised us. I mean, I guess. It, we were happy that we'd found something that we could repeat rather than write a new, yeah, <laughs> a new yeah, character. Yeah, a new, yeah. So so we did embrace that. To be fair, Trev, it wasn't so much that we could repeat it, but what we found was a perfect vehicle for putting guests into it. So each week you'd have a different guest and we could put them yeah. into a singing corner sketch, which worked. So it was a kind of repeat, but the, the difference each week was the guest. Yeah. And the, the joy of that programme was it was at the time of, of Stock Aiken and Waterman and, and a lot of like 80s, you know, boy bands and girl bands and pop acts that were kind of coming out. And 
and Saturday morning was like the, the sort of shop window for all those new acts, and and the and the pluggers and promoters were so keen to get their act on screen that they they would happily like just get them involved in in swing your pants, and so it just became a thing, and and it was just it was so funny. I mean, you know, can I, you think I, of any of the names that you had swing their pants? Can any come to mind? It would have had huge names, right? Well, Kylie yeah. Minogue was was one of the first, and, yeah. and she she was just great. I mean, she was so kind of you know keen and excited, and because she was at the start of her career as well. Yeah. So, and she just joined in with with great spirit. That was really good fun. And then we, along the lines, we had um, there was like Lisa French and Saunders, uh, yeah, French and Saunders, um, yeah. In terms of people we've done sketches with who didn't necessarily shrink their pants, but did do sketches with us. We yeah. had Cher, Paul McCartney, Elton John, Mel Brooks. We did a sketch with Mel Brooks. <laughs> That's mad, right? Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, that was the crazy thing about Saturday morning. I mean, they it was because there was nothing else like it in a way. Everyone mm. came on, and and they usually had a book or 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 something to 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 plug. But it meant yeah, that it, it mattered who they were. They would come on. We did a sketch with um, French and Saunders were in it along with Judy Dench. Um, when we were talking to Judy Dench about doing the sketch in the, in her dressing room, she was a bit unsure about you know whether she'd be able to do it and whatever. And her daughter was there with her, and it was her daughter who said, "No, Mum, you've got to do it. They're great. You've got to do it." So Judy Dench's daughter persuaded her to do the sketch with us. I love it. And again, it's just mad, isn't it? It's mad that kind of what we touched upon earlier, though, Simon, like you highlighted the. You know, that it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's mad that Saturday morning TV has basically gone. Like, mm. it was such a big thing. And the reason you would have a range of people from Paul McCartney to share to Dame Judi Dench <laughs> was because everyone tuned in. It was it was the place to get whatever you were promoting mm. spoken about on TV. So, yeah, the, the numbers spoke, and that's just kind of gone now, really. Well, I see. I'm not. I, I don't. I'm not a one for nostalgia and all of that. I mean, you know, yeah. we are where we are. And to be honest, I don't go out of my way to watch it. But I quite like that cookery one with the two guys. You know, that's quite a yeah. lively yeah. show. So you know, there are there's still entertainment, and they get great guests on. And maybe it's yeah. not. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, not in the so. kids, yeah, but it's good sense. fun. But it also, like you were saying now, you know, there's an audience for everything everywhere. So, I mean, the thing is, there is so much. And if you if you want a certain type of thing, you know, you, you can find it. I mean, I suppose that what's missing is everything all together, which was kind of the fun. Oh, that's but, it. Um, you don't all yeah. have to tune in at the same time. I can wake up on Saturday morning and watch the finale of Succession. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to yeah. be tuning in and, and watching Saturday morning TV as such. No. So I guess that's the big difference. Well, I mean, I'll start to wrap things up, but there was one thing that I noticed that was new to me. I get a lot of credit of, of being a podcast pioneer in the UK because I started this mm. podcast about a t- a 10 years ago now. Yeah. But you guys were on it back then as well, because I've not I've downloaded them all. But again, I love the kind of the realness of this of Trevor. You, you, you going to Asda before this? I'm going to get my hair cut tomorrow, so I've downloaded every episode of Strangeness in Space, and you were doing that in uh, 2015. So that was the the dawn of podcasts in the UK. Tell me a bit about Strangeness in Space. I didn't think you were going to mention that, but uh, Strangeness in Space is actually. It's it's a kind of comedy drama, really, because it's got yeah. sound effects and people acting in it. You know, we've got some great people like Patterson Joseph, Doom McKicken, really great people involved in all. Sophie yeah. Aldred and Alexis Sales in one of the episodes as well. Yeah. But also, Amazing. prior to that, we did actually do, and I don't know if they're still available, but our friend Andrea Mann persuaded us to do some podcasts which are 
more like this because the podcasts yeah. we put out there, we did about 12 or so of them, but we didn't edit them. We just put them out. It's just yeah. us talking yeah. nonsense for an hour, you know. Yeah, it's perfect. It's what, again, it's what this podcast started off as back in 2015, I think it was. And at that point, radio had gone so over to just 10 second sound bites like I'd, I'd go on in, in in my music career we'd go and have an amazing interview and 10 seconds of it it'd be on the on the on <laughs> yeah. six news yeah. or whatever else it'd be like but what about the rest because the journalists were really good we, we, we were and it's what inspired this podcast to say well let's put put out the rest i'm yeah. sure we'll get that yeah. 10 as second sound bite. Oh, yeah. and just as so you know simon it will be you saying and that's how we convinced Dame Judy Dench to do the sketch with us. That's clearly the 10 second soundbite. That's clearly the bit. But it's the whole thing that's 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 the body of it. It's yeah, it makes it all work. So yeah, what was your experiences of podcasting and what were both of those podcasts then, I guess? Well, the first one was was like you say, Andrea was involved. So that was a it was a it was a triple act then. And that mm. that it, it was just something we just thought we'd try. I don't know. I mean, we just gave it a go. So we would turn up at different places. We we did get because I was I'd already moved out of London by that point. So we were we were kind of having to find some kind of location. So we'd do it. We did one on the South Bank for a while, didn't we? There was a room we had there, I think, and then mm-hmm. then Andrea's place, and it was just chatting. And I think we sort of we did try and I don't know. We we talked about trying to do a structure to it and different format or find something that, and it just. It just had its own um, way, really, and then I, can't, I don't, I don't know. It kind of just sort of, just sort of dribbled out in the end. We didn't yeah. kind of uh, continue it, but the strangest in space came from uh, an idea from our our agent Claire, and um, who just said, "You, well, why don't we get get some ideas together with with Sophie because we were at university with her and do something mm-hmm. along those lines that was the sort of sci fi comedy stuff." And so it kind of went from there, didn't it, Simon? I think that's kind of how it started. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I you couldn't make it, but I'd gone up to Manchester for a Manchester University thirtieth year reunion. So we were all there for this reunion, and it was just it was next day hungover, having breakfast, and we all just said we got to do something together. And the strangeness yeah. in is something we'd always had as a title. We always like I, I think it, we we once had the idea that all of the characters we did on Saturday morning TV who had shops like the barbers, the dry cleaners, all the, that we would do, we wanted to do something called Street of Shops, where basically you'd have all the characters interacting together. Yeah. But then, yeah. it, then it led us to thinking of strangeness in, and I think we had different, we didn't we have one moves like maybe Strangeness by the Seaside or... Yeah, or, we'd, we'd written a pilot show, hadn't we, called Strangeness by the Sea, which, I, which that didn't go anywhere, but it wasn't quite, it was very visual. I think we had it as a kind of a pilot TV thing. Mm. And then, so when we had to think of more audio-based, we, we decided to set it in space. And so just, yeah, it was going to be, a, that again was going to be something else, Strangeness in, Strangeness in, but we, we finished with Strangeness and we had such fantastic people working for us. I mean, we had a, a guy, Dave Polzer, who did the soundscape for it. I mean, given yeah. the, if you do get to listen to it, the budget for this was incredibly small. I think it was about £250 an episode or something. It's so yeah. small to make it. And Dave did such great work with the soundscape of it and created yeah. this kind of 3D soundscape. So we had great people helping us. Can't wait to hear it. I've down I've downloaded them all. I'm ready to listen tomorrow on my on my way to the hairdressers. So I can't <laughs> wait. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I do hope you enjoy it. I mean, a lot of it was done in our agent's house. She set up her kind of living room as a kind of little recording studio and like set up all kind of, you know, curtains and, and, yeah. and screens and stuff to try and kind of because she lives opposite uh uh, uh, railway uh, station as well. So right. we had to kind of pause every now and again when the train was going by. It was, it was good fun. It was mm-hmm. really- I love it. Well, 
I've really enjoyed having a chat over everything. Um, to, to kind of wrap things up, what's ahead? Or is there anything you'd like to plug? Or, yeah, <laughs> anything? how would you like to wrap things up? Well, I've, I've plugged everything I plug. As, as you know, I work for Medicinema. So look out yep. for Medicinema, everybody. Also, um, I write a monthly column, which is mainly about films and Medicinema, for film stories, which is a great oh, magazine uh, done by Simon Brew, which you can get at WH Smith's uh, or you can get online. So... I've just written my new column for that today, which is all about Say What You See film titles and how much I like Say What You See film titles, like Big George Foreman. You know, a title that tells you what it is. Yes, Snakes on the Plane. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and and that was the one. The the uh, ultimate direct one, right? The ultimate ultimate straight to the point. And Trevor? Well, well, I'm just I'm script writing, really. So I write stuff for CBVs and stuff like that. So if if, you, if anyone's got, you know, little kids and they're watching CBVs, they might see an episode of mine from some show or another pop up there. And, uh, and I am, I'm trying to get a, a programme of my own off the ground, but I don't want to talk about that because it's one of that, you know, endlessly pitching ideas. But I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like this one to happen. We'll have to see. We'll have to see where that's going. Such a weird industry for that, isn't it? How much goes on without anyone ever knowing. Like I've, oh, I've, I've been uh, developing scripts for a while and it's the most rewarding and heartbreaking thing in the world because the rewarding part is like, I've done so much in this past year. Like, <laughs> No one knows other than me, but that's kind of okay. No. It's like, uh-huh. as long as it, I, you know. I know. I really like what I've been doing over the past month, and I'm very excited by it. But whether anyone else will be, we'll have to see. I mean, me and Simon have got loads of stuff. We've written a film. We've written series. We've written loads of stuff that's never seen the light of day. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, we were really pleased with all the work we did. But yeah, it's, uh, it's sad that some of it doesn't happen. But there you go. It's not always about the the showcasing it like you say it was rewarding doing it and learnt loads from doing it yeah completely I completely agree well it's been an absolute pleasure guys I appreciate you taking the time and yeah we'll talk soon well thank you cheers it's been lovely it's been lovely I can't even speak now after an hour it's been (laughs) lovely being on thank you so much for inviting us on yeah no problem yeah well he said definitely (laughs) it's just been a nice chat You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There you go. That was Trevor and Simon. And just so you know, recording the intro, I have since I did go and get my hair cut and I did listen to Strangeness in Space. And I wish I'd listened to it or I had time to listen to it before the podcast because the joy I got when their characters announced themselves as being from Tilbury and reference Thurrock and the Thurrock Gazette a lot. I want to know why they chose that. I'm a Stamford boy. I'm up the road from Tilbury. I've lived in Thurrock my whole life. It never gets a mention anywhere, other than in unflattering news articles. Yeah, I'm gutted I didn't get to say, what, why, 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 why are you repping Thurrock in this podcast? Um, yeah, that was a joy, wasn't it? Could you hear my smile throughout and how much I was beaming? I hope you could. I'll be back next week with more wonderful conversation. Yeah, until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.